Our text for this morning is Matthew chapter 24. It will be verses 1 through 14. And this is God's holy word for us today. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, um, privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they'll lead many astray. And you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Let's pray together. Lord God, um, there is a lot of weight in your word for us today. And my prayer for us, God, is that we would experience all that you desire for us this day. That we would learn, that we would grow, that we would be encouraged, that we would be convicted. That we would get it right. Father, please work now in our midst for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, as we return this morning to the gospel according to Matthew, I find myself both excited and a little trepidatious. I'm excited because we're turning onto the home stretch, if you will. We, if the Lord wills that things go according to plan, we'll finish this study of Matthew at the end of April. That's about 16 messages from now. Now, that sounds like a lot or a little to you, but it seems like it's coming fast in my world. But I'm a little trepidatious because we find ourselves facing one of the most difficult sections of this book and one of the most debated passages in all of Holy Scripture. Matthew chapters 24 and 25 is often called the Olivet Discourse. It's one of the five major discourses in the book of Matthew, and it's delivered by Jesus on the Mount of Olives, hence the Olivet Discourse. And, and this, this, this section here brings us into a discussion of the topic, the doctrine of eschatology, which means the doctrine of last 
things, the study of last things. And the study of last things is a topic that can be problematic in two important and opposite ways. There are those whose lives are so focused on what they believe the Bible teaches about the times at the end that they focus on little else. And God doesn't intend that we study last things so much that we can't function in the here and now. But there are other folks who want nothing to do with this, who desire no study of the last things at all. Maybe they found this so difficult that they just give up. Or perhaps they've been put off by angry and aggressive teachings on one corner and badly produced movies on another corner. And I know many people have been hurt and they've been so hurt by argument in this area that they just don't ever want to think about it again. But friends, we have a sovereign God, right? And we believe in his perfect wisdom and his perfect word. And we believe that the best way to understand the word of God, our church is committed, that we will walk through the word of God in context, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. And today, a sovereign God has brought us to a chapter and a topic that some people might rather avoid. So before we jump in, let's make a few things really clear, okay? First, as we study Matthew 24, we're going to do so graciously. We're not going to speak harshly about people who hold views that are different than whatever yours are. We're, we're going to strive to understand the text. We're going to strive to handle it faithfully. And that striving may challenge assumptions that you or I have held in the past. But we will not use this text or this series of messages as an opportunity to make fun of or be nasty to or be cruel to people who come at this from a different perspective. In this particular setting, in this church's body life, years gone by for many of you, this chapter, you felt it wielded as if it were a doctrinal club. We're not going to do that here today. Secondly, we will study this passage and we'll allow it to influence our understanding of eschatology, but we'll also be sure to study this passage for more than end times doctrine. There are lessons for day-to-day living in this beautiful and sometimes terrifying text. And we would not be faithful to the Lord and we would not be faithful to his word if all we did was use the next few messages as a way to exercise our brain and show our homework as to how we got to end times views instead of influencing our hearts and lives. We want to learn, but we want to grow too. So if you're not somebody who loves the study of last things, let let me just be, be honest with me. How many of you, when you see, oh my goodness, we're in Matthew 24, the end time stuff are going, oh no. Is there a few of you? Yeah, a couple of you kind of get trembly. Don't be afraid. If your view of this text turns out to be different than the way I view it, by the way, let's not have difficulties. We can love God. We can love God's word. We can study this faithfully. And and if you disagree with me about how this text speaks about the doctrine of last things, be be nice. There's going to be plenty of Christ-honoring challenges for all of us in this text. Even if I've missed it, which, I mean, I'm a fallible human being, so I surely can. But you know what? God is good, and God will still teach us from his word. And I'll do my very best to be faithful to the text. Fair enough? 
Okay, now in case you're curious as to where I come from on this, with only a very small possible exception or two, my understanding of Matthew 24 would be what you would find taught by D.A. Carson in his volume on Matthew in the Expositor's Bible Commentary series. Uh, Carson would tell you and me that this chapter speaks of the entire age of the church from the time that Jesus ascends to heaven through the time when he will return. Christ will speak very clearly about the major event of the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. But this text also speaks about how Christians live through the centuries that follow. Verses 29 through 31 of Matthew 24, Carson would argue, and I would agree with him, they speak of the literal, physical, visible, powerful, personal return of the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of the age. And Jesus speaks to his disciples in this chapter telling them what to expect and what not to expect and he speaks in such a way as to let us know that he's gonna return and that it gives us a little bit of what that will look like but, but most of this discourse, most of this chapter is actually devoted to how we are supposed to live in the meantime as we await the major and dramatic events. Now, I could spend a lot of time telling you how I arrived where I got to. We could sketch out the different views of the end times and the different ways that teachers have handled Matthew 24. But I really believe that the best thing for us to do this morning is just to get started. Um, you want to talk to me more later? We surely can. But if you're a note taker, be ready to make five, write down five key points this morning as we begin introducing end times. You ready? Good. Point number one, trust in Christ alone. Point number one, trust in Christ alone. Verses one and two read, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. If you recall where we've been in Matthew, Jesus has just been in very strong conflict with the religious teachers. The Jewish leaders have rejected Jesus, and for his part, Jesus has made it clear that God's judgment is coming because the people have refused to turn away from sin, they've refused to follow the word of God, and they've rejected the Son of God. At the end of chapter 23, Jesus sorrowfully said, O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing? See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's 23, 37 to 39. With that in your mind, see the beginning of chapter 24. The disciples come up to Jesus and they point out to him the magnificent temple buildings. The temple that stood in Jerusalem in Jesus' day, it was a marvel. It had been said that a person who had not seen Herod's temple had never seen true beauty. The complex of the temple was huge. White marble and gold shone in the sunlight. 
massive stones, 100, 200 tons were part of its structure. And the disciples may well have been warning Jesus to see that not everything in Jerusalem was bad. Yeah, the religious leaders are a mess, but the temple is so beautiful. Surely those curses from Jesus in chapter 23. Surely that reference to a desolate house. Surely those things don't involve the temple. But Jesus turns to the disciples and tells them with utter solemnity that sometime in the future, every last one of those buildings is going to be leveled. The three-story high gold-gilded gates are going to be melted down. The columns, the porches, the walls, the walkways, the steps, everything's coming down. The temple is going to be destroyed stone by stone. And that would have shocked the disciples. How could that ever be? But what does it teach you and me? Here's the point. Trust in Christ alone. Why do I say that to us? Christ and his kingdom are what will last. No other thing that you see in this world is solid and stable. Y'all live in Las Vegas. Those big hotels last forever, right? We have building implosion parties in this city. Your house, your city, your nation, none of them are permanent. So don't trust in yourself. Don't trust in your financial stability. Don't trust in your health. Don't trust in your job, your house. Don't trust in your government. In the end, the only thing you can trust in for certain, the only one you can trust in for certain is the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if the glorious temple of of God did not stand in Jerusalem, if empires have fallen, you've got to know that nothing else you see in this world is going to last. So we need to understand that everything around us is fleeting. Money and power and possessions are not worth chasing after because Jesus Christ stands forever. So get under his grace. Focus your life on his glory. That's the only way to last. Now verse three, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? What will be the signs of your coming and of the end of the age? Mark tells us it was Peter, Andrew, John, and James who specifically privately came to Jesus on the Mount of Olives. They walked east, crossed the Kidron Valley. They walked up the Mount of Olives. You kind of picture them maybe sitting down and looking back over the city and just seeing the setting sun gleaming off the gold of the temple. It would probably have been hard to keep looking at. And they say, when are these things going to be? What will be the sign of your coming? What's the end of the age? Again, the disciples heard Jesus say the temple's coming down. They want to know, what? When? How? And they add to their question, questions about Jesus' coming and the end of the age. 
Now listen to me really carefully here. We want to be careful not to read into the question from the disciples an eschatological understanding that the disciples didn't actually have yet. This group of 12 here on Tuesday afternoon of the Passion Week, they did not understand that Jesus was about to depart. Remember? Did they, did they believe Jesus was going to be crucified in a few days? No. They didn't understand the departure. They didn't understand his death, his burial. They didn't understand his resurrection. They didn't understand his ascension to the throne of the universe. So when they say, what's the sign of your coming, they're not thinking like modern Christians who have seen a lot of movies today are thinking of the coming of Jesus, you know, on the clouds, the sky in power and great glory as he returns to earth. Now Jesus will return in the sky with power and great glory, but the disciples, I don't think they knew to ask that question right here. That's not their question. What we need to understand is the word for coming here, the Greek word, is the word parousia. And it's a word that means more than arriving. It's a word that means more than showing up. Parousia is, is a word that is used for the formal approaching of a city by a ruler, a general or a, a Caesar or a governor could approach a city, and what he would do is he would come up close to the city and have his presence announced, and the dignitaries of the city would come out of the city gates to meet him and they would exchange official and formal greetings and then they would, in a very formal way, escort the dignitary into their city. That was a parousia. So if you think about it, in many ways, the entry of Jesus to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday looked like a parousia. But in that case... The crowds and the common folks celebrated Jesus and cheered for him. What did the leaders do? They tried to silence the people. Well, you shut this crowd up, you're going to get us in trouble. That's not the way those welcomings are supposed to go. And it seems to me that the disciples are asking Jesus, when is your, your parousia, when is your formal arrival? When is your conquering arrival when is your ruling arrival to jerusalem really going to be because we thought it might have been a couple days ago and it doesn't look like it was they assume though that when jesus arrives like a king arrives that the fall of the temple and the end of the age all of that all of that has to be woven together in their minds and now jesus begins to answer the questions of the disciples they're really confused as to how the future is going to unfold. So Jesus is going to tell them not everything, but he's going to tell them what they need to know. And here's how I believe that he does it. Again, this is some of the debatable stuff, and if you want to know kind of how I'm going to handle the chapter. From verses 4 through 28, Jesus, I believe, sketches for the disciples the age between his ascension into heaven and his second coming, which is an age which includes the fall of Jerusalem, verses 15 to 21, and the destruction of the temple, right? Then, specifically in verses 29 through 31, Jesus describes what his return to the earth is going to look like. 
his coming, the real coming that ends the age. Then from verse 32 all the way through chapter 25, Jesus is going to then look back on those sketches and teach the disciples what they need to understand as to how to live in anticipation awaiting his return. Now this morning we're going to look at the first half of the initial sketch all the way through verse 14. And he's going to teach us about life during this age between his first coming and his second coming. And we're going to see Jesus refer to a period of birth pains, hard things that remind us of his promised return. So let's look and see some things and learn more than just end time stuff or this age stuff, however you want to say it. Point number two, if you're ready for that, guard against being misled. Guard against being misled. Look at verses four and five. And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. When Jesus begins to sketch for the disciples what life in the age of the church will look like, his first words are a warning. Jesus tells the disciples, you guys need to be on guard so that you're not led astray by false Christs. Maybe false teachers claiming the authority of Christ. Interestingly, at the end of this section, verses 23 to 28, Jesus will bookend this whole little section of teaching with another warning, an even clearer warning about the very same thing. The first feature then that we need to expect to be a part of the world between the day that Jesus ascended to heaven and the day of Jesus' return, something that's going to mark our world between those, those markers, is false Christs. It's not really a surprise if you recognize the things Jesus is teaching here. The Savior is spelling out for his followers a long period of awaiting his return. He's going to point them to a period of of hardships and, and difficulties. And when there are times of hardships and difficulties, evil men arise who will mislead poor souls who long deeply to be freed from the pains of this fallen world. We talked this morning in Sunday school about how the prosperity teachers mislead people in in the way that they teach people to pray, but isn't it true that prosperity teachers play desperately, deeply, they play strongly on the emotions of people that really want to escape pain and hardship? They do. Our age is going to be marked by false teachers who will attempt to gain power and glory for themselves by claiming to speak in the name of Christ. They may even claim to be the Messiah. And we're supposed to stay on guard. And we're supposed to defend against being misled. How in the world do you do that? Cling to the Word of God. Cling to the faithful preaching of the Word of God. Cling to the genuine, non-corrupted church of God. So ask yourself, are you committed enough to the Scriptures, to the study of Scriptures, to the church, so that you will not be misled by somebody who says stuff you actually kind of like to hear and who impresses you with his giftedness? Are you committed enough to the Lord Jesus not to let somebody who tickles your emotions draw you away from the faith? Point number three. Hold to Jesus and do not fear disasters. 
Hold to Jesus and do not fear disasters. Six through eight. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginnings of birth pains. So besides false Christ, what do we see? Jesus warns the disciples not to be made over-anxious by natural disasters and political upheaval. Verse 6 talks about wars and rumors of wars. There's going to be fighting. There's going to be rumblings about fighting to come. Jesus said this is going to happen before the second coming. But the increase of violence, the increase of war on the earth does not prove anything about how soon Jesus is going to come back. Verse 7 goes further. Why will you hear wars and rumors of wars? Because in the years to come, nations will rise. Empires will rise and fall. Kingdoms will, will come and go. Battles will be fought. One country will want to conquer another. And there are going to be other things happening. There are going to be natural disasters. There are going to be famines. There's going to be earthquakes. Famines make sense. I mean, war leads to famine, right? And, 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 and some of the famines are going to be due to the wars of the world and some are going to be due to natural disasters. And, and all over the globe, there's going to be seismic activity. There will be earthquakes. There will be rumblings. There's some crazy volcano stuff that happens within a few years of Jesus saying this. It's pretty wild, right? You know what? The things Jesus said about wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines, when did that happen? All throughout the age, hasn't it been? This was true in the first century. And it's been true through the 21st century. And there's been little change. And Jesus' point here is not to make you start counting battles or charting earthquakes. The point of Jesus is to say, don't be alarmed by this. Don't, don't, think, don't think that these things tell you exactly when I'm coming back. What they're telling you, what the earthquakes and famines and wars, what they tell you is that Jesus is going to come back and he's not back yet. Jesus says disasters and wars, they're the beginnings of birth pains. Now, what, are, what are birth pains? Without any personal experience to go on here, I'm going to step out on a limb and I'm going to say birth pains hurt. <laughs> Hence the word pain. That, that's what gave me the clue. They can come when in a pregnancy? They can come early. They can come at the end. They can happen right before a child is born. But if you know any parents, if you've ever talked with, with anyone who has babies, and by the way, if you know anybody that has a baby, you know people that have babies will talk birthing all day long. <laughs> Men, true? Yeah. Pains can indicate that the birth is very near or the birth of that baby can be hours or even days away, right? The point Jesus is making is to say that these events, events that hurt, they are reminders to us that he is going to come back, but you cannot use those events to try to figure out the timing of when he's going to come back. So if you hear any teacher out there telling you that the return of Jesus is very close at hand because there have been more earthquakes lately, understand that that teaching is going in exactly 
flee the opposite direction of the intent of the Savior. But even as we think about the end times implications of all this stuff, again, we've got to think about the life implications here too. In our world, there will be pains. Wars, famines, earthquakes will come. What do you do? Hold to Jesus and do not fear disasters. You know, guys, the only way to keep your head and not be overwhelmed by the fears that could paralyze you in this life is for you to cling to the Savior. Have you come to Jesus in faith and repentance for salvation? Wars are scary, right? But if you remember, Jesus is enthroned in glory and Jesus calls you his own, then you can stand. A war might kill you. But if you know Jesus, you know that heaven, resurrection, eternal joy are yours in abundance because of him. So when the world gets scary, when disasters threaten, first and foremost cling to Jesus. Amen? Fourth point. Persevere through persecution. Persevere through persecution. Verses 9 through 13. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be, incre- will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved Here's one more feature to mark the age that we live in, and it's the feature of persecution. Jesus has always spoken this way, by the way. In John 15, 18, and 19, Jesus said, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. By the way, what do you think, I'm just, I'm just going off the cuff here and those kind of things I say that get me in trouble. What do you think the likelihood is that that verse might speak to churches that try the strategy of saying, we're gonna be really nice and that's gonna make people come to Jesus. Does Jesus say that the world will love us? But, but what if we give a lot of money to causes that the world likes? Will they love us? No. Paul taught the same thing in 2 Timothy 3.12. He said, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Well, this section, verse 9, Jesus said they're going to deliver Christ's followers up to tribulation. Ooh, there's a word, right? Again, we can make movies about this. What's the word tribulation? It's a word for crushing pressure, hardship. Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, though John refers to himself as our partner in the tribulation. Which says to me that tribulation, that hardship, that pressure, that's going to mark the age of the church. Regardless, by the way, of whether you believe in a final period of intense tribulation, great tribulation, before the final return of Jesus. Whether you believe that or not, I actually do, by the way, just so you know. You need to see that the Bible uses the word tribulation to speak of the entire period of the last days, the days between Christ's first coming and his second coming. 
what will the kind of pressures be that we face? Christians are going to be arrested. They're going to be put to death for their faith. Now, obviously, we know that in the country we live in, that could never happen that Christians be arrested for being Christians, right? You really want to buy that? I wouldn't. All nations, all people groups will hate followers of Christ because simply of who Jesus is. This is genuine, painful persecution. And that has marked the age of the church from the martyrdoms of Stephen and Paul all the way through the kind of violent persecutions that are happening right now. Have you heard people say to you, more Christians have been put to death for the faith in the past hundred years than in the previous 1,800 years combined? I've never looked up the stat, but they talk about it on Voice of the Martyrs, and I, I trust them. Verse 10 tells us that the reaction of, uh, to the hardship that we face, some people are going to react to that hardship by falling away. Part of the sadness of this age is going to be that people who draw near to the church, there's going to be people that become part of our fellowship, they like the time together, they like the music, they like the social aspect of the church, but when hardships come, they will walk away. They will renounce a faith that they never really had. They'll prove they were never genuinely saved. 1 John 2.19 reads, They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. And some of the people who fall away will betray Christians to those who are persecuting them. Some of them may leave the faith to join in with those false prophets and false teachers and false Christs that Jesus warned against in verses 4 and 5. And verse 12 says, in the middle of all this, the love of many, your translation might even say the love of most, will grow cold. The age we live in will be marked with a rise in cruelty, heartlessness, the deep-seated evil that's in the depraved heart of fallen men. Do I need, honestly, to give you descriptions of atrocities to make you believe that in our age, by the way, I mean our age from Nero to Hitler to ISIS and everything in between, many people flat lose the capacity to love. Now, again, we live in America. Aren't you glad that's not happening here? You can see videos in America of abortionists eating lunch in fancy restaurants smiling, laughing, joking, and discussing the sale of the body parts of murdered babies. I think we know that the love of many has grown cold. And like the other things Jesus has mentioned here, none of these are intended to be proof to you that his return is on any certain timetable. All the things Jesus has said from verses 9 through 12, they were true in century number one. And they have been true sometimes stronger, sometimes lesser, in every century since. There's never been a time that these things haven't been true. But verse 13 says to the Christian, we're supposed to endure to the end, and the one who endures to the end will be saved. We're to stand. We're to prepare for hardship. We are to rely on the word of God and the spirit of God to weave iron into our spines in the face of a dark world. Now, staying faithful doesn't save you. Staying faithful doesn't even keep you 
Aren't you glad your keeping you is not in your hands? <laughs> but those who have been transformed by the Spirit of God will by the keeping power of God remain faithful even in the face of desperate hardship and deep persecution. We are, until Jesus returns, to persevere through persecution. Fifth point, last point, take the gospel to the nations. Take the gospel to the nations. Verse 14 says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. You know, one might think that this frightening, painful age would make the church of the Lord Jesus Christ shrink back in fear. But the Lord Jesus gives us one final piece of this initial sketch of the age that needs to give you and me an understanding that we have a great mission and a great hope. Jesus tells us in the face of all this hardship, the false teachers, the, 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 the natural political upheaval, the persecution, in the face of every last bit of it, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom will cover the globe. Jesus Christ will build his church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. And I don't even think that this passage is intended to tell us exactly when the Lord will come. I know it says, and then the end will come, but you can't measure this. What it reminds us of is this. The age that we live in is not an age of defeat. As the world goes evil, the genuine church of the Lord Jesus Christ grows strong. I spoke to us in our sermons on Matthew 10. Anybody remember Matthew 10 in 2017? <laughs> it's 2019 now. I spoke to us of the phenomenon of polarization. And I believe that we're seeing it again right here. As time goes by, as time goes by, there's going to be a sharpening of the distinction between the people of God and those who oppose God. Those who don't want to follow God, those, those who are not changed by the Spirit of God, they will become more and more harsh and more and more cruel and more and more evil toward the things of God. Do you see evidence of that? Yeah. But those who know the Lord, those who are saved by grace through faith in Christ, even in the face of persecution and hardship, they will grow strong and stronger and stronger in the Lord. And the opposition of the world, no matter what they say, it will never ever present the church from growing and infiltrating every nation. They will never keep the gospel from spreading. They will never keep the glory of Christ from being known all over the globe and that will change the world. So what then do we do? We hope in Christ and his promises. We stand firm even when the world is harsh and we commit ourselves to the spreading of the gospel in our homes, in our city, in our nation, and all over the world. Jesus told his followers the temple was coming down and that made the disciples long to understand what was coming. Then the Savior told his disciples 
and clearly I think the church to come, there's an age coming that's going to be full of big, scary events. We're going to see false Christ. We're going to see false prophets. We're going to experience natural disasters. We're going to see political unrest and wars. And from time to time, the church is going to go through tremendous persecution. And in every last ounce of that, Jesus' followers are supposed to cling to him and to rely on his word and to stand firm. And the followers of Jesus are also to hope and to press on because the mission is not going to fail. The gospel of the kingdom is going to spread. God is going to save for himself a people out of every nation and every language and every tribe and every people group on earth. God is going to be glorified. Jesus is going to be magnified. The church is going to grow regardless of what the world tries to throw at her. And then, after every last one of God's elect have been saved, the end will come. So if you don't know Jesus here this morning, if you're battling with Jesus here this morning, hear me. Jesus is going to return. And there are only two places you can stand. You can stand with the world in opposition to God. And if you do, you will face his judgment and wrath when he returns. Or you can surrender to Jesus, repent of your sin, and come to him, and he will so lovingly give you mercy. I urge you, come to Jesus before it's too late. And Christian, trust in Christ alone. Guard against being misled. Hold to Jesus and do not fear disaster. Persevere through persecution and take the gospel to the nations. This age is going to be hard, I think. This age is going to be full of persecutions and pain. And this age is going to be full of victory, gospel, and glory. Cling to Jesus in hope. Prepare for whatever the world may throw at you. And know that Christ Jesus will hold you fast through every hardship to the very end. Long for Jesus' return and serve Jesus faithfully until that day. Will you pray with me? Lord, you know how weighty all this has been on my heart. And I know that there are other really, really sharp people who look at these passages differently. But I know that the things that we are to learn, that I said we are to learn today, they're biblical truth for us all. Whether I've got the timing right or not, the truth, the principles are true. God, help us get it right as far as what to expect. But even more so, help us get it right so that we would be a people that don't lose hope when hardship comes. That we would be a people that don't lose heart when the pains of this world come. Help us be a people that are not shocked when hard times come.
Lord, help us also be a people who rest in you, who know you, who love you. God, we need your grace, your mercy, your keeping Holy Spirit. And we pray, whether it's in this room or whether it's across the globe, you would let us see the joy of the nations being saved and the glory of Christ spreading until his return. God, we pray it all in Jesus' holy name. Amen.